What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on a very busy Monday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Bed Bath and finally entering the great beyond. It's the second big box retailer filing for bankruptcy in just a week. Is it a simply a sign of mismanagement or are the chickens finally coming home to roost post-pandemic? We'll talk about the recent jump in bankruptcies and the fallout for banks and REITs. Plus, one key data point flashing a signal only seen during or right before a recession. We'll tell you what it is and where you want to deploy your money against that backdrop. And speaking of which, LVMH is the first European company, get this, to top the $500 billion market cap. LVMH and Hermes combined are now worth the same as Berkshire, but which pair makes the better buy? It's time to take profits on one of these trades, says Carter Worth. He tells us which one ahead. But first, we start with today's markets, and uh, I guess at least the Nasdaq's got some action. There's some action, but it's very much a holding pattern ahead of a very busy week of earnings. And Kelly, I know you're going to delve more into that story in in the course of this hour, but we've got about a third of the S&P 500 reporting results throughout the course of this week, and that's maybe one of the reasons why you're seeing a little bit less movement in the broader S&P 500, which is down five points right now, about one-tenth of one percent, 4128 or thereabouts is the trade. At the highs of the session, we were actually positive, up about nine points and down 16 at the lows. So kind of in the middle of that range so far today. The Dow Industrial is just about flat on the session, 33,812. The Nasdaq Composite, as Kelly points out, is down two-thirds of 1%, so a lot of real activity there, comparatively speaking. The Nasdaq Composite, 11,997. One of the big reasons why, Four big tech and related names, mega cap wise, are reporting their results, as I noted. It is Amazon, Meta Platforms, Alphabet, the parent company of Google and Microsoft. If you're seeing those stocks trade, one of the reasons why we are seeing at least some movement there, because Microsoft shares are down about 2% right now, Amazon shares are down 1%, and Meta Platforms is down about a one-half of 1%, Alphabet just fractionally higher as well. So big tech stocks, very much dominating the discussion later on this week. And speaking of earnings... Arguably, the most important and most scrutinized regional bank report this earnings reporting season will happen today, this afternoon, and that's First Republic Bank, one of the banks at the epicenter of the fallout tied to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank's collapses. Believe it or not, First Republic shares are up 9% right now, Kelly. That makes them the best-performing stock in the S&P 500 ahead of that earnings report after today's closing bell. I know that we're going to talk much more about this, Kel, during earnings exchange later on. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you right now, I'll give you some stats later on, but the options market is pricing in some severe fireworks when this thing comes well, out Don, later on today. There, well, yeah, yes. I would say there were people who thought maybe last night, you know, the fact that we didn't get any news from the FDIC last night ahead of this result, you know, there's... There's a sense of, okay, now all of a sudden we're going to make it to earnings and maybe like WAC and some of the others, um, maybe the dust is settling a little bit. And to your point, Kelly, I think that's part of the story here. The idea that we already saw Western Alliance come out and we saw a huge pop in their stock, just given some semblance of what they reported as deposit stability in recent weeks. 
If that were to happen hypothetically, we don't know yet, that could be one of the reasons why you're seeing some traders get ahead of this right now yeah. or at least close out some of their positions and flatten out. Yeah, we'll look forward to chatting uh, more about it. Dom, thank you very much. We'll see you in a minute, Dom Chu. Let's get to the flurry of corporate stories today that highlight the post-pandemic consumer hangover that we seem to be going through. Bed Bath & Beyond filing for bankruptcy, planning to liquidate if it fails to find a buyer by June 30th. No one stepped up yet. Walmart continuing its fire sale of retail companies it bought over the past several years years, including Bonobos and Eloquy in just the past few weeks. Johnson & Johnson, meanwhile, kind of going the other way, gearing up for its roadshow for the planned spinoff of its consumer health care business. Wall Street Journal says they could target a $40 billion valuation for what will be called Kenview. For more, let's bring in Axios business editor Dan Primack. And Dan, we wanted to mention the J&J spinoff as a sign that, you know, it's not all uh, things being shuttered, but we have seen a little bit of a spike in bankruptcies here. We, we have seen a spike in bankruptcies, and, and obviously there's a huge difference between J&J's consumer health business, even though that's you know household brands that we all know, and things like Bed Bath & Beyond, right, which have been troubled for years and are finally throwing in the towel. As you said, you know they are searching for a buyer. Maybe somebody steps up at the last minute, but, but even if they do, it's most likely that what they're really going to buy is the brand. I mean, if you think about it, you might remember you know a decade plus ago, it had a big like direct competitor called Linens & Things, which mm. was owned by private equity. It went bankrupt after the the great financial crisis, linens and things technically still exist as a brand, but not as something that's on anybody's street corner. Right. People are trying to figure out, you know, I mean, in Bed Bath had its brief period of uh, meme mania and all the rest of it didn't really do much to capitalize on it. Were there management mistakes here or were they, you know, what, what could or should they have done? I mean, most of this is secular, right? This is a company that has really been trying to, to bail water out of a sinking ship for years now, obviously had some CEO switches. They did have strategy changes. I think a lot of people might look back a couple of years ago. They did a sale leaseback deal with its real estate. Uh, historically, that is often a, a pending death knell uh, for, mm -hmm. for companies. Uh, think to Toys R Us. Uh, its sale leaseback deal definitely contributed to its ultimate bankruptcy. But really, its biggest problem was Walmart and and Target and Amazon. That that was really what Bed Bath's real problem was. It didn't have a particular reason to exist. So, you know, I'm just looking through it here, and the corporate stories I mentioned aren't the only ones. We've got Subway trying to find the sale. It's a $10 billion deal. You point out authentic brands. They went, they've uh, taken Vince, which, uh, you know, personal favorite. So there is some activity, although as we saw in earnings from Goldman and Morgan and the likes, you know, these aren't the kind of big blockbuster type deals that are really their bread and butter. No, I mean, what, what you're seeing in the retail space right now is bargain hunting, essentially, right? So like Walmart, as you say, is selling off a bunch of these D2C brands that it bought when a guy named Mark Lohr was kind of running its digital practice. Walmart's even shut down Jet.com, which is the thing they bought from Lohr, which bought, put him in in the first place. So yeah, Walmart is just trying to get rid of all of its D2C stuff. Uh, and, and this is bargain hunting. Subway isn't exactly a bargain, but it's certainly not worth what it would have been several years ago. It, it seems that there's a group of private equity firms that might look to take that. And then, yeah, Bed Bath, you know, authentic brands is kind of the other side of Walmart, right? It keeps buying up things that, that are relatively low valued and are struggling uh, either in public markets or that big companies want to sell off. Yeah, you make a point, too, when we look at the IPO. So, you know, is the window open? OK, it's cracked open a little bit, maybe. And and corporate spinouts are working. By the way, the fact that they're working in a landscape when 85 percent of companies that went public via traditional IPO 20 and 21 or 22 are below their offer prices. 80, 85 percent. That's astonishing. 
It, it's awful. Uh, you know, Kenview, the, the J&J spinoff is probably going to be the exception to this. It, it's one of those kind of just strong, fundamental companies that could probably go public in most any market. And it goes with an industry trend. Uh, Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline both spun off their consumer health divisions, similar to what J&J is doing, basically saying we want pharma to be separate from this. So that'll probably be fine. But But beyond that, you have a huge pipeline of private kind of venture-backed companies, so-called unicorns that have just been waiting to go public, Instacart, et cetera. And what you really need there is someone to break the dam, somebody to be courageous and go out. J&J won't be that. It, it could be the biggest IPO in, since kind of the end of 2021 when Rivian went public, but it's not going to be the thing that convinces others to go out because it doesn't look like most other things. You, you need a big kind of unicorn sort of company to go out to get those gears rolling again. Sure. And maybe we only have a couple of months, you know, with a debt ceiling looming and then, you know, macro with the fall. So who would be the companies to watch if you think we might potentially break that dam or at least, you know, float some trial balloons about it? I don't know exactly. Again, Instacart is interesting because it has some characteristics with others and they've been waiting for a while. But what you honestly really need is an enterprise software company, a boring vanilla <laughs> enterprise software company, because that's what's really in the pipeline. Like, it, Because it, it has to be general enough that lots of other companies, dozens of others can look and go, yeah, they look a little bit like us. We don't do the exact same thing, but you know they're a SaaS model and they've got you know $100 million of recurring revenue. We, we can go because they succeeded. So that's what you really need, a boring company, not a one-of-a-kind company. Instacart arguably is a one-of-a-kind. You don't have lots of other Instacart-esque companies out there. Very well said. Always a pleasure to check in with you, Dan. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Dan Primack with Axios. The markets have been having a pretty huge start to the year so far. The S&P is up almost 8 percent. The Nasdaq's up 15 percent. But my next guest says investors really only face two choices right now. Fight the Fed or fight the tape. And he's choosing to fight the tape. Joining me now is Rich Weiss, chief investment officer over multi-asset strategies at American Century Investments. Great to see you again, Rich. Welcome. Same here, Kelly. Good to see you. You know, a lot of seasoned investors, hedge fund managers, these types tell me you never fight the tape. You know, they say that the tape is better than all these economic forecasts and those, you know, aren't worth much. And so why do you take a different view here? Well, uh, we think the stock market's in denial, at least large cap growth stocks, which are having a nice rebound, to your point, uh, year to date from last year's disaster. But th this whole immaculate disinflation theory, we do not espouse. Uh, you know, as you all know, this is finance. It's not religion, right? And historically speaking, if you look at U.S. history, stocks bottom out during or after a recession starts, not six, nine months beforehand. Uh, so we think with the, with the litany, the laundry list, of economic and financial indicators pointing downward, uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. It's a, a toxic combination of decelerating growth and, and stubborn inflation. So at this point, the only debate that's valid in our mind, it's not if, but when the recession starts, it's will it be short and shallow, uh, like a Kardashian wedding or marriage, or, or long and painful like a game of cricket? <laughs> that, that's the only choice right now. Don't offend the cricket fans. Uh, so I guess let me kind of push back a little bit more and, and choose the line that I often hear, which is, OK, well, we've been warned about a recession for 18 months now. Uh, you got to be invested in the meantime. OK, stocks have gone nowhere for two years, but that's not, you know, the end of the world. Um, you know, it's sort of this, you know, the forecasters have been telling us for every month or two or three months that the downturn is coming. And yet the S&P is up 8 percent year to date. Right. Uh, well, we, we are winding our way through this economic cycle. Housing, 
in recession, manufacturing statistics, the PMIs, the ISMs, as bad as we've seen since 07, 08. Now, certainly not saying it's going to get that bad, but uh, the consumers, retail sales numbers in real terms, plateauing or even declining. Possibly we're finally starting to see some cracks in the labor market. And I think that that's eventually what's going to turn this market around. It, labor market jobs, as we all know, the last shoe to drop in an economic cycle. And if and when that starts to come down, I think we'll see equity markets uh, wake up to the fact uh, that things, again, are getting worse before they get better and they'll reprice, especially with with earnings headed where they are. And you saw uh, last uh, quarter last year and now this first quarter coming in on average earnings recession. All right. There are some bright spots, but for the most part, on average, we're talking about earnings declining by three to five percent or more. And what I think is so fascinating about this, Rich, is your you know, assets under management are over two hundred billion dollars. So it's one thing for the rest of us to sit there and go, yeah, it looks like it could get pretty bad. But you have to figure out what to do with all of that money in the meantime. Where is it? Where are you putting it right now? How, how could you turn away four, four and a half percent uh, on the most credit worthy fixed income instruments in the world? Well, hopefully most credit worthy. <laughs> Right, right. Well, we'll see what happens yeah, in the next couple of months. But I, I think we'll pull through that eventually. So you, you got a guaranteed four, four and a half percent. If if you want to move into high quality corporates, you know, you're getting five, six percent uh, shorter, shorter term. So you don't have to commit your money for very long. You don't have to take a lot of interest rate risk. This is the safe, smart play right now, as far as we could see it. So we remain underweighted equities in favor of cash or near uh, near-term uh, instruments and fixed income. But with that said, uh, you know, if our outlook for the recession comes to fruition, we have been migrating longer in duration. Uh, you're likely to be picking up uh, some basis points at the longer end in the near future. TLT trade, uh, the good old, it's, it's back. You know, it's always, it's a TBT or TLT, and maybe the times have changed. Not that that's how you're uh, investing. Rich, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Great to see you, Kelly. Thank Rich you. Rich Rice with American Century Investments. All right, well, coming up, the key to predicting a recession could lie in the continuing jobless claims figure. MKM's Michael Darda joins us next with what he's watching with insured unemployment at its highest since November of 2021. Plus, we always talk about the beverage makers like Coke and Pepsi. Coke reported this morning, obviously. But should investors be paying more attention to the bottlers? We'll dig into that debate next. The Exchange is back in a couple minutes. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. As the debate over if or when we might hit a recession continues, my next guest says look no further than one data point for the answer, continuing claims. They're up 22% year on year, flashing a signal only seen during or just prior to recessions. I'm pleased to be joined now by Michael Darda, chief economist and market strategist at Roth ChemK and the dog. I always have to mention, uh, Mike, good to see you again. Welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You know, the data is so consistent that I don't really understand why the market doesn't care. What would, would any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it could just be that, you know, people have been talking about a downturn for a long time. I think we all have some sense of fatigue, uh, even myself. Uh, but it's hard to escape the message of some of these numbers. Uh, jobless claims are a leading indicator, but a much more near-term leading indicator. The yield curve, monetary growth, residential real estate, leading indicators, but long horizon indicators. Jobless claims tend to inflect just right before recessions, usually with a heads up of only a couple months on average, if that. And what we're seeing from continuing claims, as you noted, up 22.1% year over year in the weekly data set, totally unprecedented outside of recessions or just prior to a recession taking place. Is it possible that we just got artificially low because of the pandemic and all of the extra cash and the unheard of strength of the labor market? So in other words, is it not a, a real starting point to start from where the, I think the, the best we got was like last fall. So should we instead start from something quote unquote more realistic, like, I don't know, January? Well, recessions just aren't about levels, but rates have changed. So I don't think so. But that will be the argument. I mean, if you listen to what the bull case is, it's simply that, you know, the data got distorted by the pandemic. Everything is fine. The labor market is going to stay tight. So it won't really be a recession. Or if it happens, it'll be so mild, the market might not even notice. I think that's a bit of wishful thinking, unfortunately. I mean, I think we would all hope we could just simply sail through this without a downturn. But boy, you're really making an aggressive bet against a, a lot of indicators that have histo historically been quite helpful in warning about a potential downturn. Inverted treasury yield curve, a collapse in money supply growth, which, by the way, probably is going to be ongoing. If you're watching the commercial bank deposit data every week, it's collapsing. We're down almost a trillion dollars in nominal terms from year ago levels, wow. literally unprecedented. Um, and you have the Fed that you know is pursuing this inverted yield curve policy, which, if anything, is going to intensify if futures markets are correct. They're going to go for another rate hike. And behind the scenes, they're continuing to do QT, quantitative tightening. So the reserves base that all deposits and broad money are built on is continuing to go south. And so in that environment, do you really want to make aggressive bets for soft landings or no landings in a situation where the equity market is you know, at least price for that, if not uh, something more. And, and I would say just, you know, you're really not getting paid in, in these risk markets. 
uh, to to make that bet at this point. So it makes sense, in my view, to play it a bit closer to, to the vest, more defensively in here. Yeah, healthcare and that kind of thing. I mean, I always read your pieces and think, okay, so are, you know, do we just short things? But again, we you know we've been watching these kind of leading indicators for about at least nine months now, and yet the market, I mean, it was bad into the end of the year. We've of course pivoted since then, and so for the camp who says. No, but the, uh, uh, I hear this sometimes, you know, a mild recession is already priced in. Do you think that's plausible? Doesn't look like it to me at 18 and a half times forward estimates. And the forward estimates are coming down now, and they're probably still too high. If you think there's a recession out there, then those forward estimates probably are surely too high. And an 18 and a half multiple is, you know, pretty rosy, rosy multiple if you've already bottomed out there in terms of the recession being priced in. Uh, we'd be certainly making history there. So, no, I think, you know, I think the equity market is a bit too rich here if there actually is a recession and a further decline in earnings. Another fun statistic for you, you can look back at every profits recession in U.S. history, and some of those have occurred without a generalized economic recession, but we've never had an inverted yield curve ever without a profits recession that accompanies it. And we're in one now. It's just been, you know, mild. And I think what's happened to risk markets here is that the big headwinds last year were soaring inflation, soaring market interest rates, a super rapid rise in short-term policy rates. Now that's mostly behind us or reversing. And so, you know, that was a big headwind to market valuations. The problem we have in front of us is whether this moderate earnings recession turns into a deeper one. And with the Fed and its inverted yield curve policy, following lagging economic indicators, continuing to do quantitative tightening into the teeth of a banking crisis, it it looks a bit shaky to me. Quick final question, Mike, because for all of that that you've laid out, the Fed goes, now nah, we don't really do monetary aggregates. So if you were to say, OK, let's put this in CPI terms and if we're going to or PCE, we're only going to focus on the monthly monthly inflation numbers. Is there any chance that those are low enough 3 percent or whatever by the summer that that gives them plenty of cover for a rate cut? Is there any chance they could pick up steam again? Uh, what what would you estimate? Well, the Fed has drawn a line in the sand now on so-called you know, super core inflation, and they're looking at the service sector because they think that it's most closely aligned with labor market and wage pressures. The problem there is, you know, those indices can be helpful if all you're dealing with is supply side shock. So you're just trying to pick up an underlying trend. But if you have a big aggregate demand shock, whether you're a Keynesian or a monetarist, you're looking in the rear view mirror if you're looking at those sticky price inflation variables. So that is just not going to do. It's like steering a car straight over the cliff, but looking in the rear view mirror at clear road behind you and saying, no problem, coast is clear. I guess my point is, because they just have a different philosophy, will they ever kind of when is the preferred inflation data set going to be consistent with the level where they feel like they can actually pause or even cut? Well, they pay attention to to slack. So in the Keynesian model, you know, slack is the modus operandi of the inflation process. So if the unemployment rate starts to rise violently, they'll certainly pay attention to that. But, you know, you're already in the recession when that occurs and the neutral interest rate would be falling in that scenario. So if they're starting to move not until that happens and they're and then they're moving very gradually you could still end up with a you know with a fairly deep downturn and and most people are not talking about that right now for sure and i'm envisioning a scenario where they say okay we know unemployment's up but it's still historically low and inflation's still historically high and we've got to fight that first so uh, we will see if that's what the next months bring mike always uh, great to check in with you thanks so much 
Thank you. Michael Darda, Roth MKM. Coming up, LVMH going where no European company has gone before, past the $500 billion threshold and market cap. It's great for Bernard Arnault, but if you're an investor, it's now the time to take some profits. We'll debate that when the exchange comes back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm not just highlighting this today because I grew up outside of Syracuse, but I, I always think that when we talk about Carrier. And the shares are down sharply today, down 4.5% after the Wall Street Journal reported it's nearing a deal to buy the German manufacturer Wiesmann for about $10 billion in stock and cash. That actually makes Carrier the worst performer in the S&P today. And we'll have more, by the way, and the bullishness a lot of people read through in this story to European markets in just a moment. Elsewhere, how about AI? C3 AI down 10% as Wolf Research now 11% on a down grade at Wolf to underperform with a $14 price target. It's almost 18 right now. The analysts expecting slowing growth concerns to weigh on the stock in the coming months, saying he remains skeptical of C3's ability to hit financial targets. Its shares had more than tripled to start the year, but they've lost nearly half of their value since that peak that was back, oh, in about early April. For more on that call, you can head over to CNBC.com pro. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Fox News is parting ways with anchor Tucker Carlson, the network's most popular primetime host. The network announced the stunning news days after it agreed to pay nearly $800 million to Dominion voting systems to avert a high-stakes defamation trial. Fox News did not specify why Carlson is leaving the network. Meanwhile, NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell is leaving the company after an outside investigation into a complaint of, quote, inappropriate conduct. Shell will depart effective immediately after admitting to an inappropriate relationship with a female within the company. There is no search underway for a successor to Shell, the person added. In the meantime, Comcast president Mike Cavanaugh will assume Shell's duties. We should note that Comcast is CNBC's parent company. And Don Lemon is out at CNN. The news comes as Lemon has been at the center of a string of controversies over his on-air comments and treatment of female colleagues. Lemon posting on Twitter that he learned of the news this morning through his agent and no one from the network reached out to him directly to inform him of his termination. CNN says Lemon was offered an opportunity to speak with management. Three big media stories in the news today. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you next hour. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'll be here. I Tyler, think. thanks. Coming up, a tale of two stocks ahead of their results after the bell. McDonald's hitting a new all-time high for the 10th day in a row. First Republic rallying ahead of the print, but it's still down almost 90% from Jan 1. Are the regionals still a red flag for investors? That's an earnings exchange now.
Welcome back. We've got the busiest day of earnings season on deck this week. But in today's earnings exchange, let's dig into Coke's results and get you ready for results from First Republic later on and McDonald's as well. We'll start with Coke's beat on the top and bottom line this morning. The shares are flat, pairing gains from earlier on. According to our earnings guru, Robert Hum, the company benefited from an 11 percent rise in prices. And while they're away from home sales in the U.S. were flat, the international performance was up 10 percent in Asia Pac. Here's what CEO James Quincy told CNBC earlier. We had good balanced growth. We had the we had the we had the pricing, and we had volume. Volumes were very robust. Latin America, emerging markets like India. Actually, consumer was still resilient in in Western Europe and growing. Uh, even here in the U.S., we were able to balance out affordability and premiumization and get a pretty strong result. That said, like Procter and Gamble last week, Coke playing it a little safe here, only reaffirming their full year guidance despite that beat. And one analyst says the way to play Coke isn't buying shares of KO, it's buying buying up the bottlers. Joining me now is Bank of America's Brian Spillane. Brian, welcome. Hi, thank you. It's amazing stat here. You say the bottlers have outperformed by 38 percent over the past 12 months. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's, you know, I think it's a couple of stories, right? One is mid cap versus large cap. You know, one of the things we've seen in this market, especially this year, year to date, is, you know, small and mid cap stocks have outperformed large caps. So bottlers are a way to get exposure to that small and mid cap. Uh, the other thing I think is just the direct, rep, the direct leverage, right? You know, one of the two of the real big themes in the market has been both uh, volume recovery stories and margin recovery stories. The bottlers more directly, you know, connected to that, given that they're, they've got that point of, of contact with, with retailers and with the consumer. So we think it kind of fits two themes so far year to date. One is small and mid cap and the other, again, is both volume and, and margin recovery. Give us some examples of who these bottlers are and why should we expect their gains to continue and not see a, revers- a rever- reversal, maybe, of, hey, let me fly to, fly to safety with Coke itself or Pepsi itself itself, uh, larger cap, maybe more defensive and a weakening macro? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, you know, look at Coca-Cola European Partners, uh, simple CCEP. They're actually going to report earnings uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, Western Europe and uh, Australia, New Zealand are, are their territories. And if you look at Coke's results today, right, they talked about strength in Western Europe. They talked about strength in Australia specifically. So, again, it gives you uh, CCP gives you exposure to the parts parts of Coke's results that were very strong. Um, another one I would call out is Coca-Cola Hellenic. It's, it's covered by uh, my uh, um, my peer in, in Europe, Andrea Pastashi. Same idea, you know, Western Europe, their European business uh, up pretty strongly, we think. Um, and even if you look at Coke's results, ex-Russia, which was a drag to the prior year comps, again, talked about that, that Europe uh, region being strong. So we think that's just two examples of, of stocks where you've got exposure, not just to those themes we called out, but also parts of Coke's business that are actually doing pretty well. Yeah, that's like a running sub-theme of the show today, this European strength. Quick final comment. We have Monster listed here. Coke itself mentioned how it's some of the plant-based and newer products that are doing better, whereas traditional volumes are, are a little bit weaker sports in general. So, um, what other kind of macro trends do you see here? And what do you think about Monster itself if you cover that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, Pete Galbo from my team covers Monster, so we can talk a bit about that. I'd say two things from a macro perspective. One is lower calories, zero sugar. And you've seen this with Coke, Pepsi, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, the, the performance of these zero sugar products. They taste better than they had historically. Uh, they address a consumer need for, for lower calories. So we've definitely seen 
great performance for, from, from zero sugar products in general. Um, and as we kind of look at hydration, um, you know, smart water, for instance, for Coke performing very well. Um, and there's definitely more diversity in the, in the product portfolio. Um, and then just quickly on, on Monster, um, look, Mar Monster will fit at some point the bill of being a margin recovery story. Um, they've absorbed a lot of inflation over the last two years. Um, we think it's still a little bit early, but I think as we kind of move through later this year and that if that does emerge, you know, that should be a real catalyst for Monster as we go forward. Yeah, starting to outperform year to date. I, I enjoyed this, Brian, very much. And you your last name is so apropos. Uh, thank you for your time today. <laughs> All right, thanks. Brian Spillane with Bank of America. Let's turn now to results on deck with First Republic, of course, the first reporting after the bell this afternoon. And while the shares are down 84% since SVB's collapse, they're higher into the print today significantly, up 10% right now. Western Alliance saw that pop on deposit growth last week. Dom Chu, let's get a little preview here, if you don't mind. Okay, so this is the big deal. You could argue that this is, this is the most important regional bank earnings report of the entire season because First Republic has been at the epicenter of of all these West Coast regional banks in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. There will be a lot of attention paid, of course, to the top and bottom line results, but mostly as we learn from Western Alliance because of the deposit levels that we've seen. 85 cents earnings per share is the expectation, $1.15 billion in revenues. But it will be the deposit numbers that get a lot more attention. They ended last year at $176 billion. The expectation right now from analysts is $145 billion quarter-end deposits from that first quarter that we are seeing right now. So that's going to be he. Any kind of deposit update to the first couple, two, three weeks of this current month and quarter, kind of like what Western Alliance did, could go a long way to shoring up investor confidence here as well. Also, Kelly, I mentioned at the top of the show, this is an earnings report that there will be fireworks associated with because the options market right now is pricing in what could be an up or down move of roughly 26% for this stock on the heels of earnings. So you got to watch a lot of things, watch deposits. Also, by the way, one more thing to keep an eye on, Kelly, non-interest income. Yeah. Will they be able to show that they can still do business outside of their lending and borrowing base? financial advisors, wealth management, that sort of thing. That's going to be key. Kelly. Great point, Dom. Thank you very much. And a brave woman joins me now stepping in front of this 26 percent volatility. Shelby McFadden, investment analyst <laughs> at the Motley Fool Asset Management. All right, Shelby, First Republic, give us a quick trade here. Yeah, you know, with First Republic, it's going to be a big old wait and see because, you know, we're as Dom mentioned, investors are looking to see are there going to be these significant deposit outflows? And also, is management getting a hold on their liquidity situation. Are investors, shareholders, depositors feeling reassured uh, about their investment in this bank? There's implicit and explicit costs to going ahead and moving those significant de deposits, those that are beyond the FDIC limits. Um, but those implicit costs start to feel a little bit less heavy uh, when depositors feel like they're kind of being pushed out because they don't have that trust. So I think that, you know, the upcoming earnings are not only going to tell a big story for shareholders, but it's then going to also influence the state of deposits going forward. So, you know, investors aren't just looking for more yield. They're looking to make sure that their deposits are safe in a way that maybe they weren't thinking about 
six to eight months yeah. ago. No, wait and see is very wise. Uh, spent, you know, 10% up <laughs> into the print, too. Dom, thank you. Shall yeah. we stick around? We're going to talk some McDonald's before we go here. They're out before the bell tomorrow morning, and they've actually beaten on 15 out of the past 20 reports. Shares are hitting new highs day after day. They're up 11% this year. Shelby, oh, no, before that, Kate Rogers, please. Um, are expectations too high, Kate? I don't know. What, what are people looking for here? Yeah, investors and analysts, Kelly, really expressing a lot of confidence. As you said, the stock has been on an absolute tear the last few weeks leading up into earnings with a lot of confidence rather in McDonald's ability to continue to perform in this environment. So we'll be looking at U.S. same store sales, of course. Those will be key, projected to increase 7.9% by FactSet. We're going to have an eye out to see if offerings like the Cardi B and Offset meal help to boost sales this quarter, as we've seen with those celebrity order meals in the past. Next up, if McDonald's is benefiting, of course, from any trade down as consumers start to feel higher prices weigh on them both at grocery stores and at other restaurants. McDonald's could see more business as a result of that. And then third, if price hikes are continuing and what traffic has looked like so far this spring. Are people coming in? Are they spending more or less when they come in? And how sensitive are consumers to price right now? Those will be uh, the key items I'm watching for. A hundred percent. You always wonder, Shelby, did Coke tell us? I mean, they said how they did it and McDonald's sells Coke. Uh, what would you do with the stock? You know, when I'm thinking about McDonald's uh, as a, you know, as a consumer play, it's not necessarily my preference. Uh, I'm more of a, you know, value oriented, uh, cost advantaged companies when we're thinking about consumer. However, I do think that investors are really jazzed about the potential cost advantages that they've been able to drum up uh, and about the top line growth potential as part of both trade down uh, and their increased focus on trying to deliver not only value, but quality and experience. Because if you're going to try and capture a little bit of mid-market as wallet uh, share is narrowing, you're going to have to deliver on those, you know, that at least that luxury feel, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that McDonald's is also going to tell us a lot about the uh, cost inflation when it comes to uh, commodities and labor. So yeah. there's a big story, I think, to tell with just one stock coming up. I was at a Burger King uh, yesterday or the day before, and one sandwich, not even a meal, it was like eight ninety. It was for like a filet of fish type sandwich, eight ninety nine. And I'm thinking... Yeah. I don't know how much more room they have to run uh, on price here, but whether that helps McDonald's remains to be seen. Shelby, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Shelby McFadden and our Kate Absolutely. Rogers reporting on McDonald's today as well. The CEO will discuss these results in an exclusive interview on Squawk on the Street tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Don't miss it. Now, in the meantime, we'll take a quick break here. Coming up, one small high school's big fight for financial literacy. The exchange is back in a couple. Dow's up 15. Welcome back. 30 states require high schools to offer personal finance classes, but only 17 of them require students to take one of those classes in order to graduate. And one of those states is Vermont. That's where CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson went. Sharon, to look at one teacher's fight for financial education. And wow. Yeah, it is a while. You know, when I went there last week and I spent a morning with an inspiring and devoted teacher, I found out she's on a mission. Her high school has about 200 students from many different countries speaking more than 20 different languages. And she is ready to teach personal finance to every one of them. Students at Winooski High School are required to take a personal finance course to learn about money management before they graduate. How to build your credit. Applying for college and loans. How to write a resume or cover letter. You can have some fun with that. Courtney Paquette is teaching them about earning, saving, and spending. 
and you're going to have to buy all of the things that you want. We also want to think about how long we have to work to pay for those things. Key steps in budgeting for what they'll need for their first apartment. You're going to have to buy your mattress too. A bill to make a semester-long personal finance course a graduation requirement at all public high schools in Vermont has stalled in the State House. You've been advocating for personal finance to be a standalone class that all high school students have to take in order to graduate. Why do you think that's such an important requirement? I see the impact every single day in my class. So every single day in my class, students are engaged, they're asking questions, they're bringing this information home, they're applying it to their own lives, and they're, they report to me that they're making better financial decisions because of it. And research shows Paquette students are not alone. Professor Carly Urban has studied the outcomes. When personal finance is required in high school, you see improvements in credit scores, you see reductions in delinquency rates, you see fewer payday borrowing choices, you see less reliance on credit cards. In eight states, all high school students are required to take a semester-long personal finance course before graduation. And 10 states are in the process of implementing that requirement. After taking this class, it has helped me to start saving my money and to start investing right now. Students in Winooski say that everyone could benefit from a financial literacy class. Do you all see yourselves as advocates for personal finance now? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I would definitely. think so. It's one of the few classes that no matter what you're going to do, it can apply to your life in some sort of aspect. And it can help to improve your financial well-being, too. You know, many polls show that popular support for financial education definitely exists, but many students may not have access to personal finance classes. It may be due to budget constraints or other curriculum demands, but they need this education. And many people are looking for free resources. CNBC has them for teachers, for students, for everyone to learn more about budgeting, saving, and investing, including a free eight-week newsletter. You can sign up for Money 101 newsletter at cnbc.com slash money101 or just use the QR code there on your screen. That's awesome. A great idea because I was thinking about sort of the Robin Hood and the retail yes. trader effect and a lot of, you know, high schoolers and th were trading stocks. But even there where, you know, that, that's just one aspect of personal finance. I mean, a lot of this is broad basics of credit score. I don't know if they get yes. into that, but these are really important they things to know They absolutely get into credit scores, and that's very important to them to be able to build credit. They know how important that is, but they also know they don't have one yet, but they want their parents to have a better credit score. True. And they know the impact that that can have for borrowing as they're looking for college, to, toward college and toward other things after high school. So that is definitely a topic that was really of interest to them. And it is important to learn about investing, but you have to learn how to manage money day to day right. as well, and maybe even first, so that you then have that disposable income that you can put into investing um, after you've paid your bills. Anything, did they surprise you with anything in terms of the apps they were using or the, the kind of financial, the places they were going to meet their needs? Well, what really surprised me was the lesson that I was there to learn with the students, which is how do I pay for my first apartment, the mm. things that I want inside of that apartment? <laughs> how many hours does it take me to work? Yeah to be able to afford the mattress, the bed frame, the microwave with all the different gadgets on it because I want the top of the line. Right. And, they were, and they were strategic in saying, I don't need a desk. 
I'll just work at the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather get this gadget or this thing. So it was really interesting to see them work that out and, and figure out how much money after tax income, because yep. they factored that into, which go. a lot of people forget yeah. about, how much then is it going to cost them to buy what they want for their first apartment. So that was an excellent lesson that she came up with. Sim so simple and so powerful. So important. Sharon, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Sure. Sharon Epperson. Still ahead here after a break, LVMH hitting a market cap milestone as the first European company to reach a half a trillion dollars. But shares are up more than 30% so far this year. One technician says it's time to take profits. We'll check the charts next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The S&P 500, pretty impressive, up 8% this year. But European stocks are up even more. The stock 600 up more than 10%. And the luxury sector in particular has been crushing it. Hermes up 44% year-to-date. LVMH 33%. Richemont, I hope I'm saying all this right, up 26%. And LVMH is now the first European company to surpass half a trillion dollars in market cap. If you combine it with Hermes, by the way, their combined market share equals Berkshire's. But one technician says now's the time to start taking profits after LVMH's big run. Joining me is Carter Worth. He's CEO of Worth Charting, along with our very own Robert Frank. And Carter, before we get to the, to the charts, Robert, let's look at, at how we got here. And, and by the way, we've now seen, you know, uh, carrier bidding for a German company. And earlier we heard about the European bottlers are doing so well. So there seems to be this European strength. Yeah, and that European strength highly concentrated on those top luxury brands, especially LVMH. This is a company whose stock is up by a third this year. It's up 70% since September of last year. Most of that is the China reopening and the hopes for that. But the real secret to success for LVMH is its diversification, not just the 75 brands that it owns. 75 Maisons now from wow. Sephora to Dom Perignon to Fendi to Louis Vuitton to Dior but also the geographic diversity. So now we're seeing a little bit of cooling in the U.S., but China is kicking in, and, and that's been the reverse of what we've seen for the past two years. So, you know, we could see a slowdown this year from the incredible growth that we had in 2021 and 2022, but if anyone owns this space and is going to be the most stable, it's going to be LVMH. And yet, Carter, you think this trade's gotten a little ahead of itself? Well, remember, it's, it's uh, and it's also others. I mean, Ferrari, it's other luxury goods. But if you look at it compared to maybe some comparables like Estee Lauder, which has kept pace with uh, these until of late, or L'Oreal and some others, these two, LVMH and Hermes, are sort of unto themselves. And it's not about uh, a long-term view. It's just about sequencing. At some point, the day-to-day, week-over-week angle of the line is just too steep. Um, just as things can get overdone to the downside, uh, so bad it's good. Of course, you can have the reciprocal. Um, who's the incremental buyer? Everyone loves them. Every analyst has raised their price target. Take some money off. And yet, Robert, that performance over the past decade is impressive. You know, it'd be like, I don't know at what point. So if we compare them to NVIDIA, we say, OK, well, when should you have not bought NVIDIA? 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019? I mean, at some point, the, the people who have a proven track record just have a proven track record. Yeah, and look, uh, Carter's a great chartist, and I would say people have been calling for a decline in growth at LVMH for over a year, expecting that recession at the high end to happen. And it has, hasn't happened. Those folks at the high end, whether it's in the U.S. or overseas, are the least impacted by inflation. That spending has not slowed down. We're seeing it for Ferrari. We're seeing it with watches. We're seeing it with art. We're seeing it with high-end real estate. And so... 
if you look at the, the margins and the growth, they doubled what the analysts expected in the most recent quarter. They were expecting 8%. They got wow. 17 Wow. And yet we also saw, you know, the French storming their headquarters after that strong report. So, Carter, I take your point. You know, when we can't find anything bad to say about it, we often have turning points like that. And I, I, why did you compare them to Berkshire in particular? I loved that. Sure, that was kind of fun. But well, so the report was done um, obviously all Sunday, and then it was kind of nice to have these headlines hit that LVMH has now uh, crossed the 500 billion. But per chance, um, if you plot these two stocks as a basket, as an equal weight basket, um, while they are very correlated, it, you can look at them relative to uh, other assets, not only to the stock 600, but their combined market cap per chance is almost identical to Berkshire. And obviously, we did a we did a poll for institutional clients as well as individuals. Which would you rather mm-hmm. as an investment between now and year end? It's overwhelmingly Berkshire now, probably valuation wise, because people know right that on a price to sales basis, you know Berkshire's well, trading at twenty four and the basket's trading at seven point three, wow. or price to earnings twenty three versus thirty eight. Or it's just people looking at the chart and saying, you know what, it's great, I love it, I'm in for ten years. But I think day to day, I should reduce, trim, hedge, do yeah. something. I got bad news for you. That's your buyers. If everybody, hey, if your own poll says they'd rather own Berkshire, then LVMH maybe have a little bit. We shall see. <laughs> Carter, thanks very much for your time thanks. today. Carter Worth and our Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Tyler's busy getting ready for Power Lunch, and I'll see him and you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.